The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are now under, oh, just about two weeks away from the upcoming forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. Again, we've been talking throughout the whole month of August about this summit. For those of you not paying attention, this is a very, very big deal. 50 African leaders will be making their way to Beijing in what is really the biggest event of the year in China-Africa relations. Of course, this is a summit that happens every three years. This is the seventh such gathering of uh, Chinese and African leaders. Everything is on the table. It's not just going to be about the dollar amount of aid and financial package that will come, even though that will probably dominate the headlines. All summer, what we've been seeing are these different tracks that have been playing out. So early in the summer, uh, some 50 African military leaders came to, uh, or leaders from 50 African states came to Beijing for two weeks. There was a military track. We just concluded a health track. So health professionals from Africa came to Beijing. Kobus, you were part of a delegation of African scholars, analysts, and think tank people. I don't know what you guys call yourselves, who came to, to Beijing as well for a whole series of seminars and uh, discussions about the future of China-Africa relations. We also had media professionals who came as well, journalism and reporters and whatnot. Interestingly, we have not had an environmental track this summer. As far as I can tell, it may have happened, it may have been off the radar, but that was visibly missing from the whole, from this discussion. And Cobus, as a whole, it seems like green issues and environmental awareness has really fallen off the wayside this year, now that ivory is banned by the Chinese government. Yes, the, the green and ecological issues were really quite big news in, at Folk Act 2015, um, which took place in Johannesburg. Um, and that was, that was really the, the, the heat uh, was really on, on China around ivory smuggling and rhino horn smuggling. Um, and particularly in Africa, activists were really, were really organized around that issue. Um, and then the ivory, the ivory bank ban came through, China closed down down a bunch of, of domestic ivory workshops. Um, and to, uh, I think a lot of people now essentially see environmental issues as done and, and completed. You know, kind of not really worth discussing anymore. Now, what's interesting is that this is not just an issue not being raised by the Chinese side. African states, for the most part, as well, are not putting environmental and green issues and sustainable development at the top of their priority list. Uh, for the most part, there are exceptions, of course, to this, but... What I see much more of is infrastructure development, more weapon sales, more media exchanges, technology development, skills transfer. But environmental issues definitely are not even close to the top of the agenda. Now, Ivory was just one piece of a very complicated puzzle. When we're talking about environmental issues, we're talking also about power generation. So the Chinese are building in Lamu, I think it is, in Kenya, 
uh, coal-fired power plants. We're also talking about how infrastructure is being developed uh, into protected wildlife areas, uh, as in the standard gauge railway in Kenya. So there's a lot of issues in the infrastructure development. All these things touches on so many different facets of the China-Africa relationship. So we thought it would be a good idea to check in with somebody in Beijing who's been following this very, very closely. So we're thrilled to have on the program for the first time, Calvin Quek, who is the head of the Sustainable Finance Program at Greenpeace East Asia in Beijing. A very good afternoon to you, Calvin. Thank you for coming on the show. Good afternoon, Eric. Good afternoon, Cobras. Nice to meet you guys. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you on the program, and we're really glad to be able to finally talk about environmental issues. And Cobus, I got to say, we're kind of guilty of this as well. We have not done as many environmental shows, and, uh, and in some ways that reflects, again, how attention has shifted away from green issues in the China-Africa relationship. So, Calvin, why don't you talk to us a little bit about, are you seeing the same thing that we're seeing, which is... Green, sustainable, environmental issues are not as important in 2018 as they were in 2017 and before. Yeah, I think that's probably true, Eric. Um, I think the focus uh, early on China several years ago was really about air pollution. We all remember the, the, the stories about uh, how Beijing was blanketed in gray skies back in 2013. And the government uh, has done a lot to address those issues in addition to dealing with air pollution and soil pollution and so forth. But if, as you're trying to clean up the economy, some of the more difficult questions about your pathways to development come into question. And some of these are some of the challenges that Chinese government are trying to fix internally within China. So basically, what is the economic plan B for many of the towns and provinces here in China who have relied on heavy industry or heavy polluting industries to develop? And so by extension, as China goes out into the rest of the world through its Belt and Road Initiative, that also raises a lot of questions about, well, to what extent can the, the focus of Belt and Road developments focus on a clean version of development as opposed to a dirty form of development? So I think it's in the point where it's getting to these real technical kind of issues, which are really hard to unpack. Um, can you give us an idea of where, where China is at the moment in terms of the link between between development and and environmental pollution? You know, so I think the conventional idea would be that in order to develop, you need to to push industrialization, and industrialization is going to be dirty. You know, you know, um, that that would be the kind of traditional idea of of my traditional idea of of what. Chinese, the, the kind of calculus was in, in Chinese development. So, so you're going to have to make space for some pollution if you want to develop. To which extent is there, is there development of a logic that it is possible to develop without paying this heavy environmental cost? Yeah, that's a good question, Corbus. I mean, so first thing to note is obviously China is an enormous country with many provinces within the country itself, uh, which are medium-sized European states and obviously at different levels of development. So if you're looking at the eastern provinces of China, they're actually quite well developed, have economies uh, which are comparable with some medium-sized European nations. And if you look into the interior of the country and in the northeast of the country, these, uh, these provinces tend to be a bit more backward and tend to focus much more on heavy industry or, or pure resource extraction. So a lot, of the, a lot of the focus in China, at least from policymakers, is what they try to think about is how, to, how we can actually sort of leapfrog and try to bypass uh, dirty stages of development, either by uh, taking best practices internally or by learning from the West. And if you look at what has happened with respect to the air pollution issue, 
which really was a result of overcapacity and overdevelopment of the heavy industry around in the provinces around Beijing, he actually found industries that were actually just way too big beyond not just the environmental cost, uh, but also beyond the economic reasoning for those industries. So over the last several years, the air pollution issue has been dealt with, uh, not just from the frame of we need cleaner air, but also it just makes better economic sense because these industries, the steel sector, the coal sector, the glass manufacturing sectors and so forth, they were just too big relative to demand uh, uh, that uh, these, uh, these companies were facing. So there is, there is absolutely something to be said about, yes, development and that there's a cost to that, but there's certainly smart ways to go about developing. And if you're, going, if you're going about developing, polluting the environment, and also without any kind of economic, real economic uh, benefits, then you're going the wrong, down the wrong pathway. I want to try and bring our conversation back to China, Africa and FOCAC. And again, kind of certainly what's happening here in China is important, but China is at a very different stage of development than where most of Africa is. China, of course, 15, 20 years ago was where Africa is today, but that's not where we are today. But so going back to this question of the hierarchy of issues related to FOCAC and the China-Africa relationship, where are you seeing green issues in what will be the, the big summit coming up in two weeks? Do you think it's going to be a main priority as it was in 2015 and before, or has, has the relationship moved on? This is not something they're going to talk about. Again, ivory was the flashpoint for a lot of people. That issue in many people's minds is settled, even though it really isn't. Poaching is still a very, very serious problem. But what's the, your take and the take of Greenpeace in terms of the overall environmental agenda between China and Africa? Yeah, Eric, I think it depends on the, the, the country that China is engaging. Obviously, in some of the Asian, uh, African uh, states, African countries, I imagine that perhaps climate change or dealing with climate change would be an issue. But I also imagine that for many of the countries which are very early stage of development, this is not a priority for them. Um, certainly here, with respect to the FOCAC, I believe absolutely that's all going to be about infrastructure, which is what uh, the China has, been, China has been pushing as a win-win vis-a-vis uh, -vis countries in Belt Road and, of course, extending to Africa as well. So uh, that's something that uh, will be definitely behind an agenda for developing countries in Africa and less so for the more developed ones. Kobus, let me ask you a question here because I'm very, very curious to get your take on this. There was a lot of discussion in the building of the SGR, the Standard Gauge Railway in Kenya, where it went through a national park. And people, particularly in the West and environmentalists in, in some parts of Africa, were furious that the Chinese were, you know, building in an area of, of protected wildlife. But isn't there always going to be a trade-off between environmentalism, wildlife conservation, and development? And I guess my the part that I struggle with is that we in the West have made that decision. We've paved all of, you know, California, where I come from is paved up and down with freeways. China here is paved up and down with railroads and freeways and whatnot. And it just seems like, I mean, again, I'm very, very sensitive to the environmental issues and the wildlife concerns, but development always comes at a cost. What's the balance of that, Kobus, in terms of the politics? There's a lot of talk in Africa about the, at the moment about the need to try and leapfrog, as, um, as, as you mentioned before, as Calvin mentioned before, the, the, the need to leapfrog over dirty industry into sustainable development directly. Um, and that is more and less difficult to do, um, you know, depending on the particular government involved. Um, so, for example, you, the, you know, the, I think the Standard Gauge Railway situation in, in Kenya is a complicated one because that national park 
is really on the border of Nairobi. You know, you, you can you can see the skyscrapers of Nairobi, you know, kind of while standing next to giraffes. So th- that national park was always going to be in some form of collision with, you know, with, between natural natural environment and, and human settlement. Um, and the Chinese did, to be fair, they did, you know, elevate a lot of that railway. It's, it's off the ground. So it's kind of, it's on bridges and animals kind of wander below the bridges. I mean, that still does, bisect the environment in, in, a, in a fundamental way, but at least they're not being hit by trains. Um, but I think, you know, the, the, the larger issue, um, you can see clearly in the Lamu development that you mentioned, which is this very historical island, also one of the islands where, um, where Zheng He, the, the Chinese, the Ming dynasty era, Chinese seafarer visited Africa, he visited there. Um, and so it's, it's a UNESCO protected area um, and they're going to be building a, a coal-fired power plant right next to the UNESCO protected area. Um, so, you know, that is extremely unfortunate and the, you know, environmentalists in Kenya have been really protesting against this a lot um, but it then raises the, the question of you know who made that decision because you know no one had a gun to the Kenyan government's head you know those were those were dis- pragmatic dis- um, development decisions made about what would be for them the most profitable or the most sustainable or the most you know kind of easy to do kind of electricity generation option and they went with coal um, you know so, so it, it seems to me like it breaks down a lot a lot also in terms of domestic issues within the Kenyan society and you know the 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 amount of say that Kenyans have in um, in development decisions as much as it does about China um, Calvin um, do, do you agree with that or do you see does China still play a stronger role than I'm characterizing it as I mean, I, th- I think you're right, Kobus. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of talk about of leapfrogging, as I mentioned, um, and trying to learn from uh, from China as they try, you know, and uh, trying to find ways uh, to develop in a way that doesn't destroy the environment. I don't think anybody wants to purposely destroy natural wildlife as they're trying to develop. Uh, but obviously, these are uh, uh, sort of the the costs or externalities, as they say, uh, with respect to development. Now, I do think that China um, has been painted in some ways as sort of coming with these billions of dollars and these construction firms and, sewing, and, and pushing ahead a development agenda that is firmly uh, focused on uh, dirty industries. But I think I would agree with the point that was made in one of your previous shows where there is agency and obviously uh, it takes two to dance, whereby many of these African countries also signed up to a package that resulted in uh, these uh, natural uh, environmental problems being caused as part of these development packages they signed with China. One of the topics of discussion that's going to happen at the FOCAC summit in a couple of weeks is whether or not all of Africa should be included in the one belt, one road trade route that the Chinese are developing. And if you're not familiar with Belt and Road, it's also called uh, BRI, Belt and Road Initiative, OBOR, One Belt, One Road. There's lots of different names for it, but basically... It's so far the Chinese have spent somewhere north of $250 billion to build infrastructure all over the world. They are expected to spend somewhere in the range of 500 to 750 billion, with some estimates going as high as a trillion. Uh, now, this is also tied in with something else uh, called the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a terrible name, actually, in part because 
the AIIB is not just in Asia. It's now having development projects all over the world. In fact, I think there are some, Egypt is now part of the AIIB. Kenya, I think, is, was accepted as a new member of the, of the bank as well. And it's raising questions now with all of this Chinese money going to infrastructure, not just in Africa, but in the Middle East, in South America, in Central Asia, uh, all throughout the world. Uh, what are the environmental consequences of all this building? And uh, and the financing of BRI is done by China's policy banks and development banks. And Calvin, you wrote an article for your excellent blog called Panda Paw Dragon Claw, which we will talk about at the end of the program. Uh, you wrote an article with uh, Lauren Hewitt. I th- yeah, Lauren Hewlett. Green evolution, can China's new multilateral banks make Belt and Road more sustainable? Why don't you make your case for us on whether or not that is the case? Thanks, Eric. Uh, in my article, well, in our article, I should say, we laid out the case that the AIB is at this point in time, despite its rhetoric to be lean, clean and green, not able to uh, push a development agenda that truly would meet uh, the requirements for planet Earth to deal with, say, catastrophic climate change, for example. Uh, and uh, the reasons for this are as follows. First of all, the bank is very, very small. It's very new. They have less than 200 people, and they're operating in a field that is dominated by other players. Now, in China, most of the finance that's coming out and flowing into uh, countries as part of the Belt and Road Initiative and, and beyond that, uh, based, really, the money that's really coming out from the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank. Uh, and many people may not have heard of these two banks, but they are by far the largest source of overseas finance coming out from China, which support many of the state-owned enterprises that uh, make their way into Belt and Road countries. Uh, the second thing I would say that with respect to AIB and also by extension, the BRICS Bank, which China founded with the, the BRICS grouping of countries, is that they, um, they're also an exercise in global governance in some ways. At each of these two different banks, you have a weighting of China, obviously, as a leading, as a leading country shareholder, but you also have other countries there as well who are pushing their own kinds of agenda. Now, in these two banks and in these forums in which they speak, you can see sort of a push and pull between the people who focus on development per se and the, fo- the ones who want to focus on sustainability. And as it is right now, the jury's still out about what form uh, these banks will take. So it's really a project uh, uh, that we'll have to keep an eye out for, uh, but it's really too early to say whether they will actually be able to make the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, lean, clean, and green. And Calvin, um, as you mentioned in the article, you know, the the the, the more traditional policy banks, like the Exim Bank, um, they are major funders of, of infrastructure and other kinds of um, development in Africa. Um, can you give us an idea of, of, of how embedded they are with with technologies like coal, for example? Like how, how much of that of that investment is old style, dirty, polluting uh, industrialization, and how much is more sustainable? Yeah, so the the funding that the Exim Bank would provide vis-a-vis to companies that are perhaps building power plants uh, in countries outside of China uh, would have to adhere to the industrial standards as set by China's own uh, regulatory authorities. So as it is now, uh, China would certainly would try to push for the cleanest forms of coal power plants to be developed overseas. 
But at the same time, that also is dependent on the ability of countries to pay for that technology. So there's this kind of tricky balancing act between the the host, the, the source of the the, the 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 source of the finance in this case China and the recipient country, uh, and uh, what kind of power systems, what kind of power developments they would like to get from China. I think the other thing that also should be noted though is that. Uh, what the China Exim Bank funds and what the China Development funds is also very much tied to the program that is set between the China and the host country. You know, uh, uh, power plants, coal power plants, or infrastructure, or highways and bridges. These are not just pieces that are, should be seen in isolation, but are pieces of a, of a foreign policy agenda that ties the two countries together. And in there, in that lies many other dimensions as well. Beyond just infrastructure, we're talking economic, we're talking social, we're talking cultural. In some cases, we might even be talking about security as well. So it is quite a mixed picture, and uh, so we have to take this on a case-to-case basis. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witt's China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. When I'm back in the U.S. or in Europe, um, I get into these arguments with people and uh, several of my friends are environmentalists and people are very generally very hostile to China in, in the U.S. and Europe. And so most of the, the discussions we get into are uh, overtly negative towards China. So I get into this position of like defending them, even though I'm not really defending them, but I just don't agree necessarily with where the hostility is coming from. And one of the points that people bring up is pollution that people turn around in the US and Europe and say, you know, China's so polluted and that proves that their system of government sucks. That's that's the argument that a lot of people say. And my retort back to them is that, well, no, you in the US and Europe have simply outsourced your pollution to China. You don't want, you have environmental regulations that are so strict that make the cost of manufacturing too high. So therefore it goes to other countries like Vietnam, Bangladesh, India, and China. And it's simply outsourcing the problem. It's not that you in Europe and U.S. have solved it. You just pushed it on to somebody else. We in China are bearing the brunt in our air that so someone in the U.S. can go shop at Walmart and buy all the stuff that's made in China. That's, at the end of the day, the reality of what it is. In Vietnam, the air quality is getting worse for the same exact reason. All those Nike shoes, those Adidas shorts, those are made in Vietnam with low environmental standards so that someone can buy a pair of shorts for $4.99, which is not the true cost of those shorts when you take into the environmental cost into that. So now here in China, what's happening, the cost of manufacturing is going up. Also in cities like Beijing and Shanghai, middle-class people are just fed up with the pollution. And so they've communicated to the government that they don't want this anymore. And it's very, very evident what's happening. And the government is shutting down factories around these big cities. They're pushing some of the factories inland, but they're also basically saying, you know, go offshore. And so I guess my, my, my concern here is that are we going into a phase now where China is simply doing the same thing that the U.S. and the Europeans have done for decades and offshoring its pollution now to Africa, to Vietnam, to South Asia, to South America, where more of those manufacturing jobs are going to go, to countries where it's cheaper, 
it can be dirtier, and there's less enforcement. Do you see that as a trend that's happening here? Yeah, Eric, I don't see this as an explicit policy of the central government here no, in China. No, 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 it's not a policy. It's not, I want to be very clear. I don't think it's a policy, but it is a re, it's an economic reality that it's much more expensive here to produce because environmental regulations are getting tougher and because the cost of labor is going up. Absolutely. So multinationals such as Nike, such as Adidas, uh, chemical factories and so forth, they actually have a business decision that they, could, they will be taking to move production out of China into places which have weaker environmental standards. That's, that's absolutely something that we will see happening and is happening right now. Uh, the, 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 the question, though, for multinationals is whether they can continue to do this and whether they, need, they should take into account local factors and also upgrade their technology as they move on offshore. If I could follow up on that, Calvin, if I could ask you a question, uh, uh, you know, I, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot and making you quote like numbers that you would have to look up. But um, what, I, what I frequently wonder in this debate, uh, you know, about the offshoring of Chinese uh, industrialization to, to places like Africa and then the, the development choices that Africa faced, especially in the context of this, this idea that Africa can kind of leapfrog over dirty industry towards more sustainable industry in, as part of its industrialization. I wonder to which extent that is literally true. So say you have an African country who's like, who has iron ore and they're like we want to make steel you know we have all of these minerals we want to beneficiate them we want to you know kind of produce smelt and produce steel and then export that to which extent is that feasible to do that with sustainable energy or do you necessarily need to have a coal burning plant in order to have those like massive bursts or amounts of energy or would you have to pave your entire country in solar cells in order to do it like like how doable is that actually yeah, uh, so, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road, right? And um, absolutely, if you're going to develop the economy, you know, if uh, South Sudan is moving up a development pathway and wants to reach, say, um, Switzerland at the end of this development mountain, it will have to pass through Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, other developing countries, Turkey and so forth, on that development pathway. There are certain things that countries have to build as a, for, uh, for basic economic development, roads, uh, water, sanitation, so forth, and that requires energy and obviously that, uh, that, that is polluting to the environment. But there's certainly a lot of said to be said also about uh, being able to take in the best types of technology to learn from the West or, developing or developed countries to try and leapfrog some of these uh, some of these problems that happen as a development. But I also think the other question that countries in Africa need to think about when they're thinking about the long-term development plans are also what is the what is ultimately or what is within the next 15, 20 years, what's the development pathway? You know, what is what what should what type of country or what kind of uh, economy do they envision for themselves? Uh, 15 or 20 years from now as they take uh, China's advice or its money and so forth. Are they going to be focused on resource extraction, which uh, for many countries, which are actually extremely highly developed, also come at a very high cost. We, we talk a lot about what they call the resource curse. Take Russia, for example, essentially oil, an oil and gas country, essentially. And because of its focus on the oil and gas sector, it completely crowds out any other form of development in that country itself. You look at countries in Asia, which have decided, well, who do not have any, any kind of resources uh, to speak of, say, Taiwan, oh, not, 
uh, say Singapore, for example, or places such as Hong Kong and Taiwan, they decided very on that we have to focus on a particular future growth-oriented sector that will allow us to get out of our development, uh, uh, development uh, difficulties. So I think these are kind of difficult questions that African countries need to think about. I am not an African specialist, and each African country has its own set of historical, social, cultural, and economic uh, uh, advantages and disadvantages that they can play, a cause they can play in this uh, development pathway, and they should try and play it right. And I, I just think that uh, you know the simple, the simplest idea of just kind of digging up your cobalt, for example, which is what the Democratic Republic of Congo does, and this, uh, uh, focusing on that as the key industry for development is probably not the, the best long-term strategy. May not be the best long-term strategy, but that is the that is the way it is, and it reflects the lack of of good governance in a place like the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I think that's a key part of any discussion about environmental policy in in many African states. Is that in order to be effective, you also have to have a strong government behind it. And even in countries here in Asia, which have much stronger governance, they haven't been able to achieve that. So it's a really tricky question. And I guess the key question we're going to we're not going to answer it today is whether is China actually helping the process in Africa to develop those that governance that will lead to more sustainable development or is the infusion of cash to African elites and the focus on development at the cost of everything else something that really, you know, puts environmental issues at the bottom of the agenda, which is kind of what it seems like is happening here. Uh, in in the FOCAC 2018. Of course, we will see in a couple weeks, and Calvin, we hope that we'll be able to circle back with you to get your reaction to what environmental messages did come through FOCAC and what they mean. So we appreciate you taking the time to join us. Calvin Quick is the head of the Sustainable Finance Program at Greenpeace East Asia. He's based in Beijing. He's also one of three editors of the Panda Paw Dragon Claw blog. It's a blog that I have just recently discovered, and honestly, everybody, you need to go sign up for their email when every time they put a new post on because the stuff coming out of this blog is just fantastic. Tell us a little bit about the blog and who's behind it. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you for that. Uh, behind this blog are two friends. Uh, one is a fellow named uh, Tianjie Ma, one of the most brilliant uh, astute observers of China within China, and also another friend of mine uh, whose name is uh, um, uh, Tom Baxter, who hails from uh, Northern Ireland, also living here in China and also a very astute observer of China. Of China. And the, the idea behind this blog was to try and uh, uh, write about issues related to China's rise, uh, both from the perspective that looks, that's more positive, so from the, from the, from the panda paw, the softer perspective, or from the perspective where uh, China's uh, rise may actually be negative, so the dragon, uh, dragon claw uh, perspective. And, uh, you know, we, we, there's a lot of commentary about China outside of China. We wanted to try and produce a, a quality blog written by people who live in China and can kind of explain about what's, what, what, what we feel and what's happening inside of China uh, from, from an on-the-ground perspective. So we've actually tried to also time our latest posting with the FOCAC uh, Summit and uh, with the recording of this podcast. So our latest, podcast, our latest blog is uh, written by a, a contributor, uh, is, is written by a Chinese uh, researcher who is looking at China-Africa studies. And we also have upcoming a retort or is a, a response to that blog from an African student uh, studying here in China. So uh, please, uh, please, please sign 
sign up and please follow our blog. And thank you very much for your support, Eric. No, it's really great. Uh, the, the address is pandapawdragonclaw.blog. So it's one of those new fancy URLs that, you know, the dot blog, no more dot com, dot org, whatever, but dot blog. So if you can't find it on dot com, it's the, you know, these crazy kids today with all their URLs, you know, but uh, <laughs> pandapawdragonclaw.blog. And the article is uh, the new one that's up there is China and Africa discovering the China model through empirical evidence. Kobus, that sounds like a wonky title that you would do in an academic paper. <laughs> empirical research depicts a picture of Chinese involvement in Africa different from common perceptions, and it's written by Shou Huisheng, who is uh, at Tsinghua University. So getting some Chinese voices into the discussion that are not from the traditional propaganda channels. That's so important, and it's very, very hard to find. Yeah. So much of the Chinese discussion about China Africa is through the propaganda channels, CGTNs, uh, you know, China Daily, Zheming uh, Zhibao, all these different kind of outlets. And yeah. so to kind of get these these alternate voices is really, really important because a lot of people, again, don't really understand the complexity of the Chinese position here. And so I think your blog is making a great contribution. Also, uh, are you on Twitter and some other folks that they can follow you, what you're doing these days? Yes, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is ClearRoads, C-L-E-A-R-R-O-A-D-S, ClearRoads. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Calvin Quick again with Greenpeace East Asia. Thank you so much for taking the time this evening. Thanks for having me. Kobus, you know, the most interesting part of the debate is the balance between environmental issues and development. And for so many people in the West who don't have to wrestle with this, it's so easy. Of course, the environment wins. Protect the animals, protect the air, protect the land, protect the water. That goes without saying that that should be the top priority. But it is so hard to explain to people when you live in developing countries like Vietnam and China. And yes, China, most of China is still a developing country. Where I live in Shanghai and where Calvin lives in Beijing is certainly not we are at European levels of development here, but one hour from here, and I'm back in the 14th century in many respects. I mean, it is ox carts pulling, you know, chariots, and it's just, it is really rough in many, many parts of China still. Uh, that, those development issues are not resolved. And the questions come down, come down to the very basic rational strategy and policy decisions that you talked about in Lamu. Does someone like President Kenyatta put a power plant that may be dirty, it's a coal power plant, to feed his people electricity when they have a power deficit that is astronomically high? Or does he go with a much smaller scale green energy, which may not be able to meet the demands of his people at the cost and the price point that they need to achieve? These are the real world issues that policymakers like Kenyatta have to wrestle with. And again, we come back to this question of agency here, that Africans are not victims here in these decisions. And you talk about this so much in your writing, and I really, really love it. The fact is that these are cold, calculated, strategic decisions that a lot of African leaders are making in order to be able to live on very, very finite budgets and resources. So these are issues that in the West, I think, are oversimplified because of the complexity of, the, in, of what the issues are, particularly in the developing world, where we have to make decisions in a very, very different paradigm. Yeah, and, and I think frequently in the West, um, it is an oversimplified discussion between either, you know, de developing and polluting or not developing, and therefore this assumption that if you don't develop, then you're not going to pollute, which I think is not true. 
you know, for for a while, I'm not sure exactly where um, where the numbers stand right now, but for a few years, South Africa was one of the the highest per capita um, air polluters in the world. Not because of of heavy industrialization, although South Africa does have you know heavy industry, but it was because so many poor people didn't have access to electricity and were therefore burning wood, um, you know, on a daily basis. So so if if you know underdevelopment does not necessarily save you from pollution, you can be underdeveloped and polluting. Um, and it is exactly that kind of dilemma, I think, that Africa is facing. Um, I think it ought, what also one of the other issues is that it comes down a lot to the vision and the kind of world, the kind of world horizon or like mental horizon of, of your particular leaders who are making the decisions. So if, if, you know, like in Africa, a lot of people came up through mining and mining has been a traditional industry in many African countries that was the one way to develop the country, one way to, to, to make some money, then it's a kind of a hammer. If you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail kind of situation. You know, kind of like people people who came up through that system, tends, they tend to think into, in those systems terms and they tend to look for other opportunities that replicate the opportunities they had before. So, you know, it's, it's a kind of a paradigm shift to talk about how you can actually develop in a different kind of way um, that is not this conventional way of developing. And to a certain extent, China might, you know, on the one hand, China is great in terms of being very innovative, I think, in, in terms of also, you know, being doing a lot of, of significant investment in renewable energy. But on the other hand, China is the poster child for old school, you know, polluting development. You know, that is their thing. They, they, did a, they did a lot of manufacturing, they did a lot of heavy industry, and now they're rich. So that narrative has its own, its own weight in Africa. Um, and I think that is a really important issue that, you know, the, the narration of Chinese development and the way that it's narrated in African context, I think that needs a lot of work. And that is the path that a lot of countries are taking, which is this big gamble of get dirty today in order to be rich tomorrow and clean up when you have the money to do it. And that seems to be what China is doing right now. As you pointed out, China today stands at both extremes, where some of the most sophisticated innovation in sustainable energy is happening right here, from electrification of automobiles to solar power to all these different areas. And it's so exciting to watch. There is a real necessity here to solve this problem. Unlike there's not the same kind of urgency in the U.S. and Europe. And in U.S., what we see, interesting that you bring up the mining example, Cobus, because that is exactly what Donald Trump is doing. Donald Trump is rolling back cafe standards, fuel standards on cars. He's investing in coal and, uh, and he's rolling back environmental regulations. So in some ways, he's mirroring what you're talking about in Africa. And that really takes away from Americans' ability to, to be sanctimonious on this issue, because in their own country, pollution levels are no doubt going to go up given the direction that energy policy is going in the U.S. Now, that doesn't mean that obviously people in the U.S. don't have a right to criticize, critique, and contribute to the discussion, but it does make it difficult for on a policy level that the U.S. in some ways is going backwards, whereas China, at least in that sense, is trying to move forwards. It is a super complicated issue. We're going to keep this discussion alive because, again, I feel a little bit guilty and personally responsible that we have not talked enough about China-Africa environmental issues this year. And in some ways, I think we have contributed in a small part to the, well, it's not as important anymore because we follow the news cycle a lot for our different topics. And Kobus, I would like to make a, a, a more of a strong of a stronger commitment between now and the rest of the year and going forward that we do more on environment. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Um, because it's you can't you can't divorce environment from issues of development and industrialization. You know, industrialization is the key theme of China Africa issues at the moment, and and the, it is an environmental issue. You know, there's no there's no industrialization with with without you know with without taking the environment into account, and there's no development without some kind of environmental cost. Even places that are super clean now. Didn't used to be, you know. Like I remember um, reading an account of what it was like to live in Tokyo in the boom era of the '60s, when 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 Japan was doing a lot of what China did to get rich. You know, also the heavy industry, lots of manufacturing, and people were saying, if you lived in Tokyo in the '60s, if you were out during the day and you got home at night, you were combing ash out of your hair. Like that's how polluted Japan was in the '60s. Now Japan is pristine, beautiful, amazing environmental, you know, regulations, but. You know, having that kind of first first world environmental regulations comes on the back of development. You know, London in the 19th century was a toxic nightmare. Um, the same, you know, the same that parts of China is now, and the same that 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 places like that Vietnam is on their way to becoming. So it's yeah, it's difficult. It's very difficult. And, and let's not forget that the United States passed its first Clean Air Act in 1972, and the Chinese oftentimes remind American critics that their Clean Air Act is about 50 years old. It is not yeah. that old. I mean, so 200 years after America founded as a country, it developed its first Clean Air Act. So I think in China said it's still early on in its development program. Now, of course, the stakes are so much higher today than they were 50 years ago, given where we are in terms of climate change. But nonetheless, that is an important point to kind of to put some context on this. One final point that we want to make, everybody, is that we have just launched our brand new 2018 reporting guides for the upcoming FOCAC Summit. So we do this for uh, for journalists to help educate journalists around the world who are coming to cover the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Beijing and those who will be in newsrooms back home. Uh, this is done in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. We have published them. They're up on my LinkedIn page. They're also on my Twitter page. I've pinned it to the top. So uh, you go to Twitter, find me at eolander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. You can download those. For those of you inside China, I am struggling to find a way to share these PDFs that's inside the firewall. So right now you still need a VPN in order to get them. I am furiously trying to figure out a way to get it so that it's inside the firewall, making easy for people to be able to download them. But in for now, you'll need a VPN to do it. Kobus, we wrote together, you and I, 10 of the key issues shaping China-Africa relations uh, very quickly, just because we're way past our normal time. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the reporting guides and what we were trying to do with that. We try to make them as short, sharp, and useful as possible. So we give we we identify a key issue, we give you the the main like bare bones, most important facts you need to know, um, the countries that are involved, and then we add a, links to a podcast where we discuss the issue in detail and links to experts who have written on this issue and links to other further reading where they can take you deeper and deeper. So if you need a quick overview just to see what the issue is about, the page itself will do that for you. If you need a deeper dive, we have we give you successive deeper dives where you get more and more detail on the issue until you become an expert. And if you're inside China or anywhere else and you can't download them, just email me, eric at chinaafricaproject.com. 
and I will send you a copy of these guides. They are absolutely fantastic, and we're very, very proud of it. Uh, just very, very useful, quick, actionable information, nothing too thick, and you can get the top 10 issues as Cobus and I see them. So we wrote that, and so we'd love to hear your feedback for it. So so that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Cobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. We will close out the month of August uh, looking at FOCAC uh, next week. And then, of course, it's the summit. And then we will do some analysis post-summit coming up in September. So for Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.